Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Andrea. And I'm Mahesh. And today we've got Liz Elting, a guest who we're super excited about. She has recently made Stern News with a huge contribution of $5 million to the university. And she's an MBA graduate here at Stern. Uh, I'm super excited to meet Liz. She's a co-founder of TransPerfect, as well as the founder and CEO of the Elizabeth Elting Foundation, as well as being a five-time resident on the Forbes Wealthiest Self-Made Women list. Needless to say, we're super impressed to get to know her a little bit more about her background and how she founded and started this company. Let's get into it. Cue that music. From New York University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. All right. Well, welcome, Liz. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited to hear from you. Welcome back to Stern. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Um, we want to just dive in here and get to know you a little bit better, especially considering you're an alum and have um, a really illustrious career outside of Stern, as well as now a lot of the work you're doing uh, with the foundation. But before we get to all that, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you grew up, and kind of you know your, your story early on. Sure. So... Basically, when I was little, I lived in Westchester, New York, in Chappaqua, and I lived there until I was eight years old. And then when I was eight, we moved to Portugal and lived there for a year, which was fantastic. It was my first exposure to languages. I was able to study Portuguese and French there, loved languages. And then when I was 10, we moved to Toronto, and that's really where I spent my formative years. I... I, Loved Canada, loved growing up there, started also studying in high school Latin and Spanish. So I got to study more of what I loved, but really loved living, you know, first in the U.S., then in Portugal, then in Canada. And um, it was wonderful. So then when I was 17, I came back to the United States for college, and I went to Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, and um, loved that. And then I did my junior year in Spain. I decided I was going to be a modern languages major, so I wanted to to live abroad, and that was fantastic. All of my courses were in Spanish. I lived in a Spanish dorm, and then I returned to Connecticut for my senior year, and then shortly after graduating from Trinity, I worked in Venezuela. I did an internship in the financial division of an all-Venezuelan company, and that was a wonderful experience. Oh, that's so cool to hear about. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you moved from this strong passion for languages to finance and eventually into business school? Sure, sure. So it was interesting because I did always have a passion for languages. As I mentioned, I studied four languages by the time I went to college, and they were just my passion. I thought they were fun. I loved communicating with people from other places. And then, actually, when I was in college, I remember I was very stressed about what I was going to major in, and I remember calling up my father and saying, I love languages. That's what I want to major in, but what am I going to do with it? I was very <laughs> practical. I yeah. wanted to have a great career, and I thought, 
I want to go into business. I had had many jobs growing up from the time I was about 10 years old. I mean, everything from, you know, babysitting to paper route to telemarketing mm -hmm. to all kinds of things, uh, working sort of in operations in an office. And I, I knew I loved business. So I wanted to do business. And I thought, well, how am I going to do that being a language major? But I remember my father said to me, don't worry, do what you love and it will work out. So there I was, a language major, and I was trying to get a job in another country, which is what, as I mentioned, I did. I worked in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. The job I happened to get was in finance. Um, it could have been in marketing. It could have been something else. It's just what was available. I, I got what was an ISEC internship, if, if you're familiar with ISEC, that organization. It's the, ISEC is the French acronym for International Association of Economics and Business Students. And so... They matched me with this financial internship in Caracas, so in Venezuela. So did that and then returned to the U.S. And I was actually just passing through New York, um, visiting my sister. She happened to be here. She was two years older than I was. And I thought I would go to Washington, D.C. and do something international. That was my plan after returning from Venezuela. But um, my sister referred me to a company called Your America. And it was, at the time, the world's largest translation company. My sister was actually working at Ogilvy, Ogilvy and Mather, the ad agency. Yeah, yeah. And Ogilvy owned this translation company. So I went in and met with them. I loved it. I remember at the time, this was in 1987, and there was a Macintosh computer on every desk. And this was really <laughs> the beginning of computers. I mean, we just started working with computers. Cutting and edge at the time. Yes, yeah, it was so cutting edge. <laughs> Every computer had this little Macintosh on it. And that in itself was very high tech. And I saw they were combining high tech um, with languages. And I thought, well, isn't this interesting? And I wanted a job in sales then. And I said to them, do you have anything? And they said, no, we don't. We have something in production. And I said, well, would I maybe be able to move into sales? And they said, yes, start production, start in production, and then maybe you will have the opportunity can, to can move into sales. Can you tell us what production is? Sure. What does it mean for sure. that? Sure. Yeah. So basically, um, it's the division or the part of the company that takes the projects from start to finish. Okay. So the salespeople bring them in, and then the work gets turned over to production. And in production, I was a project coordinator where I was responsible for all of the translations into English because most of the work was English into another language. And because I was a native English speaker and I had studied a number of languages, this made sense for me. So I would delegate the work to the translators, editors, proofreaders, um, and make sure the instructions were followed, do a quick proofreading, and then return it to sales, mm -hmm. who then turned it over to product, uh, to the client and right. interacted with okay. the clients. So did, I did that um, in production for at the company for two, year, or two years, yes, and then I was able to move into sales my final year there, and I loved the industry. I loved everything about it. We were working with the biggest companies in the world, dealing with every language imaginable, but the company was only about 90 people, 9-0. Oh. Wow. And it was the largest at the time. This was uh, between 1987 and 1990. And it was really, um, you know, at that point, it was a mom and pop industry, a very fragmented industry. I loved it, but I thought it could be done better. Mm. Because I had been first in production, where I was taking the projects from start to finish, and then in sales, and I heard what they wanted and what the, cl what the clients wanted. And, um, you know, what they 
were happy with and what they weren't, I saw so the, the clients wanted the work faster. If they had a project and they said something like, okay, this is 10 pages and I need it as quickly as possible, how soon can you do it? I would say, okay, well, we need a week. Because I was told to say that, but I knew we could do it faster. I knew we could do it in a couple days if that's what they needed. So they needed work faster. They also needed all different kinds of deliverables. We were only working in WordPerfect and Microsoft Word back then, and they needed more deliverables. And also, if we made mistakes, there wasn't a lot I could do. And I thought, we're making mistakes. The, the customer is always right. We need to fix them and return them and not charge them for, for it. So that type of thing. I thought it could be more service-oriented. So faster, uh, higher quality, more service-oriented, and really a one-stop shop. That was my thought. Okay. So worked there, loved it, but didn't think I could really advance in the company because it was 90 people globally. It was a relatively flat organization. And also I thought it could be done better. And then finally, I was a language major. I went to a liberal arts college and I was missing the business piece. Mm. I thought if I want to grow in my career, I need the business background. And where better to go than than Stern, than NYU Stern. I was living in New York. I loved New York. I thought Stern was fabulous. And so I was very excited to start at Stern in, in 1990. That's fantastic. Um, you came full-time to the program? So I came as a full-time student. I wow. was fortunate that I was able to leave that position. Yeah. And after... those were the early days of the full-time program. It was Yeah, uh, you're yeah. right. You're right. There were a lot of part-time students at the time. And, you know, I, I felt very fortunate that I could come here full time. I did. And I absolutely loved it. I I studied. I took all the things I didn't take in undergrad sure. because we didn't have finance courses. We didn't have marketing courses. We didn't have all of that. And I thought that would really complement my background nicely. And, of course, I needed to. I was getting my MBA. But I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do. I ended up being a finance and international business major. And I think the reason I went in the direction of finance, quite frankly, is because it was stern. In sure. 1990 to 92, 70% of the uh, students were finance majors. Wow. That was what people did at Stern back then. It's it changed was quite a bit. Yes, <laughs> it was all about yeah. investment banking. Sure. That was the thing to do. That was the key to success in life. So I thought, I've got to try this. I was very ambitious. I, I was really brought up to make sure I was never financially dependent on anyone but myself. I remember my parents used to tell me all that all the time. So I knew I needed to have, and I wanted to have a great career. So I thought, it, I thought I needed to try out finance and investment banking. So then shortly after graduating, I did get a job in the proprietary trading division of a French bank. Um, and still had that international edge, I did. right? I still thought, <laughs> always exactly. pulling you. I thought, well, I that's that. a way I can still keep up my love for all that is international. Right. But um, it was a certainly a different experience than I was anticipating or that I wanted. So basically, I was the only woman um, professional there at the time. When I say professional, I mean, they had an administrative person. But I was the only woman MBA. There were a few of us. And I went in there, and whenever the phone rang, they would yell, Liz, phone, because there was no receptionist. I mean, I was the new receptionist in their mind, and that, you know, was 
demotivating because that wasn't my plan. And um, I also, I didn't, I didn't love the work. I, it was so different from everything I loved about the translation industry. It was, I mean, very exciting, I'm sure, for some people. It was equity arbitrage is what it was, and it was investing the bank's money, and it was a lot of number crunching and a lot of filling out forms. It just wasn't what I loved. What I had loved about the translation industry was working with language, every language, working with professional linguists and solving clients' problems. Mm -hmm. And I thought it could be done better. You know, I mentioned could be more um, quality-oriented, could be more service-oriented, service, could right. be a one-stop shop. And finally, I thought production and sales needed to be more on the same team. Mm -hmm. So that was in the back of my mind. Uh, and then uh, they start, I said, what else can I do here? Because, you know, I want to learn more. I said that at this um, proprietary trading division. They said, well, you know, you can go around and find out what supplies people need. And I just thought, you know, this is, this is I didn't love it. So I felt like it was quite... Um, sexist, and I didn't love the work. I didn't mm. see myself in any position at the company. I learned from this. This was not the route for me to take. I think the reason I had majored in finance is I always thought I have to do what I would not naturally do. I have to challenge myself. I have to learn more. But I ended up realizing from my majoring in finance and then briefly working in finance, I, I had to really pursue my passion. So mm. I ended up saying to my boss after four weeks, only four weeks. Four uh, weeks. Yeah, I wow. really I learned quite quickly what I did not <laughs> want to do. And I, I, I thought, this is very irresponsible of me. I remember I called up my dad and I said, Dad, I think I made a mistake. Uh, I feel terrible quitting. It's so hard to get a job. This was a recession in, in New York at the time in 1992. Yeah. That's right. And yeah. he said, well... You might have a lot more fun starting a translation company, but uh, you know, I, I think you, you know, I don't, I don't know if you'll make money. <laughs> I mean, that was really what he said, and I mean, he, my dad has steered me right all, every step of the way. He and my mom are my biggest mentors, mm -hmm. but at that moment, I thought I have, I have to be, I have to do something I like, I, something I'm meant to do. So I said to my boss, um, "I'm sorry, I made a mistake. How much time do you need?" And he said. Two weeks is fine. <laughs> and so after six weeks, I left and I started TransPerfect. And, um, you know, b best decision I ever made. I loved every minute of it. Oh, that is so amazing. That's such a wonderful leap. Thank you. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, in some ways, but it was quite a, it really, in the end, quite an easy choice because I was used to living like a student. This was, I graduated in May of 1992 and started it in November. So mm -hmm. I wasn't used to living well. I was still actually living in an NYU dorm room with my partner, I mean, my boyfriend, who I started the company with. Mm -hmm. I, I might, he then became my business partner, but um, didn't have big expenses. Yeah. Did, and it was a good time to do it. And I, I also say I did it at a great time because I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I had time. I had time to put in 100 hours a week, 120 hours a week, and that's what we did. And that's very difficult to do when you have a family. So you're carving out TransPerfect in this budding space, right? Uh -huh. And you saw yourself. There were a lot of weaknesses in the space, a lot of a lot, a lot of places that TransPerfect can do things differently. Mm -hmm. What, you know, of those goals, service, quality, speed, client focus, were you able to capture all that and to what TransPerfect did at the time and like what does it do you know now sure, I guess as you built sure. it. Sure. 
So yes, the idea was to be a pioneer in the industry. So many companies back then were started and run by translators. It was a very fragmented industry, lots of moms and pops, where the people who started the company were also doing the translations. Okay. I was never translator material. Mm -hmm. I, I learned languages. Despite the languages and all that. <laughs> no, oh, okay. I mean, the, the professional translators know the languages at an extremely high level. Okay. They know them is practically as well as their native. They know the terminology, be it financial, pharmaceutical, legal, in a way that, you know, I, I don't probably know it in English. I mean, in a way that I don't, you know, Certainly, so yeah. very talented people. And then I had the business background and I, you know, we had a vision. The goal was to become the world's premier language solutions company. Actually, back then we said language services because technology was not a big part of it. But then over the years, it, it became, you know, to be the premier language solutions company with offices in every major city around the world. Um, and, you know, that's what we ended up doing. So we started, as I said, in this NYU dorm room about a half a block from here, Amazing. very close to Washington Square <laughs> uh, Village. Um, sweet to you. Wow. Um, and um, there's some freshmen there who have no idea now that like, you know, right. brilliance was. And I've heard it's been redone and it's okay. quite beautiful now. But, you know, this was back with the cinder block before, sure. before NYU yeah, had done yeah. all the amazing things it had done to make this place as beautiful as it is. In fact, when I went to school, my second year, I was down um, by on Wall Street, Trinity Place. Okay. Yes, and the last year that Stern was there before was they my... centralized the campus yes, here, here in, in exactly. Washington Square. Wow. They yeah. did it in '92, and I, in the fall of '92 okay. is when people started coming here. So I actually went to school downtown, but it was nothing. You know, it was not beautiful like this. Sure. But but it was a wonderful experience. So so yes. Yeah, so we ended up um, growing it into the world's largest language solutions company with about 100 offices around the world, 5,000 employees. It's doing over $700 million in revenue. And um, it was just a wonderful experience. I, we worked with amazing people who really helped helped build the company. What, what did those early years look like? Did you have to use a lot of your connections from when you were, you know, abroad or even like working when you were in D.C. in order to get your first few clients and start churning out the first few products? In the very early months. We were in the dorm room literally for six months. And then the big goal was we want to pay for an office. We want to have the money to pay for an office within six months. And that's exactly when we could. So that early time in the office, we did not use connections to get clients. Um, it was a lot of cold calling. Wow. It was hundreds of phone calls a day and and thousands of letters a week, mass mailings, and then attending trade shows and then lots of meetings, one-on-one -on -one meetings. So that was how we got the clients. As far as translators, I did um, have some relationships with translators from the past. And I remember when I decided I wanted to start TransPerfect and, and do it better than the competition I hadn't spoken to them in a couple of years because I had been getting my MBA from Stern, but I called them up and I said, what do you think of this industry? And, you know, how much of a need is this? Because it was two years after, and they said, it's a very good time to do this. They wow. said, mm -hmm. and this was back then pre-internet, but they said, I just have my name in the yellow pages and I'm getting lots of calls. That's what these individual right. translators yeah. told me. So I thought, okay, it's a very good time. It's the beginning of the globalization of business. And it was. I, As I mentioned, I, I co-majored here in international business 
with um, you know finance, and I was seeing it's the beginning of the globalization of business, so it was excellent timing as well for starting, and there was a big need, and so that that helped. So, and then grew that. I mean, at the at this point, TransPerfect has relationships with about sixteen thousand subcontractors, translators. So the point mm. is, we started with a few. But but grew it through networking and referrals and testing and you know reaching out, but so it wasn't drawing on um, old contacts for the clients and just for a handful of linguists. Okay. And did you experience any pushback as you attempted to make things faster and better? Because it sounds like you identify this really high needs area and. You, were you the only one doing this, yeah, or that—that that is a good question because when we started, we didn't come across a lot of people doing it. Um, it was still quite fragmented, so that was helpful. And it's interesting because now, after twenty-seven years since we started, it's become more. Uh, there are some bigger players, and it's more consolidated. But there are still so many companies in the industry. Maybe. 30,000 is the last wow. number I heard. And so many are small, and it's still quite fragmented, and there's still very few, over $100 million in revenue, very mm. few, uh, you know, a, a small number. So it's still quite fragmented. But as far as pushback, we found our challenges, but we also, I think, clients welcomed it because mm -hmm. they wanted faster, they wanted more service-oriented, they wanted more deliverables, they wanted the best quality, and... Um, so clients welcomed it, and um, and we we created some great relationships with linguists as well. We try, you know, worked hard to keep them happy. Yeah, no, that's 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 absolutely true. I'm curious, um, as you're building this, you reflect on your MBA a little bit. Like, what what really stood out from your MBA experience that you were able to, like, you know, use in a sure. tangible way sure. as you built this business, especially as we think about now. Lots of budding entrepreneurs or our own classmates here, and think about sitting in class and trying to use that experience into into the real world. How much of that did translate, for lack of a better word, right, or, right. or or were you able to use? Right, and I I know Stern was very helpful, and often I it's hard to know exactly how. Yeah, it's hard to and, quantify until you're looking right, back. Right, until yeah. much later, but um, even now I still have you know, really nice relationships with so many people from here that I found, you know, I, I met a wonderful community of people here, including through the beer blasts. I thought the beer blasts <laughs> were so very good. beneficial. Yes. I, I think they're great. You heard it here first. <laughs> you heard it here first. I mean, Amazing. you know, uh, developed wonderful friendships there. And also, Agreed. I think you really learn to network there. I remember going there and staying for the full four hours from four to eight, you know, basically letting loose, but really Andrea work. runs it right now, yeah. so I can say, yeah. Well, 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 I was almost like, well, what are you doing tonight? <laughs> yeah, it is Thursday. Right, that's <laughs> right. We'd love to have you. Oh, right. thank you. No, I I absolutely, I loved those beer blasts. Um, so, and then I met my business partner here, mm -hmm. and he was from a completely different background. He didn't have the language experience. He didn't have the industry experience, but, you know, he certainly had other strengths and, and skills. So, you know, found the networking, very yeah, valuable here, met my business partner here, majored in international business, you know, co-majored in international yeah. business. That was very helpful in reminding me, this is the beginning of the globalization of business. Um, the, I'm, the finance and marketing, 
were great. I mean, I loved my marketing courses. Uh, finance was great. It's just, as you know, it's at a mm-hmm. whole other level sure. from what I needed being an entrepreneur. But it's certainly um, that the basics were helpful. And then I think now there's a, there are even more entrepreneurship courses and management courses. Mm-hmm. And, boy, those those would be beneficial as well. I didn't take enough of them. But I would now, and, and people here now, if they know more that they're going to end up using them, I would recommend doing that. And then another thing is I was part of something called Entrepreneurs Exchange here. I don't know if you still have it, if Stern still has it. Mm-mm. But, yeah, that was great where there were mentors who were entrepreneurs, and that was very helpful as okay. well. So Stern was fantastic. Oh, that's good to hear. Well, speaking of mentorship, entrepreneurship as well, I know that you recently started your own foundation and have been really active in giving back to Stern as far as providing money for a scholarship for women, as well as being involved in the Stern Accelerator, the EFL. Could you talk a little bit more about the inspiration behind some of these activities? Sure, sure. Thank you for asking. Mm -hmm. So I think we we need more women at Stern. We need more women business leaders. And so I'm very excited about the scholarships. I know, you know, for so many of us, it, it's very, yeah, education is, it just, it's expensive. It, and the costs keep going up and, it, and it's very difficult. And we need more women. We need more qualified women. I mean, there are plenty of qualified women. We just need to encourage them to come to Stern because there's no better place to get one's MBA. And so I want to help support women coming to Stern, getting their MBA here, and then being with women business leaders. So so that's really what inspired me to do that. I guess I'm aware that we don't have as many as we'd like at Stern. And then in business, in my years in business, I would have liked to have encountered more women in senior management positions and C-level positions and in CEO positions. So I want to help be a part of that now uh, for numerous reasons. I think it's better for women and it's better for business. It's better for all of us. Um, And then as far as the Endless Frontiers Lab, I'm also very excited about it. I think it's fantastic what Stern is doing with all of these budding entrepreneurs. Wonderful for the entrepreneurs and for the Stern students who are getting involved in in helping them uh, with their business. And I love the idea of supporting these entrepreneurs, and um, so twice a year, uh, two 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 winners a year who are women, mm-hmm. I will be involved in you know in investing money in their companies. Okay. So so it's the four scholarships a year for MBA women for mm-hmm. women MBAs, and then two um, endless frontier labs winners um, who are women. And at the end of ten years, we'll have forty scholarships and 20 entrepreneurs. And I'd also love to be involved in getting to know these women better and, you know, being involved in what they're doing along the way. That's so exciting. Thank you. Um, Can you tell us about the foundation itself? Um, What kind of work does the foundation do? Now you lead the foundation. It's it's what you work on, um, you know, spend most of your time on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So how did it come into being and and what's, what's its mission and purpose now? Sure. So the main mission is to help support and empower women, women in business, women in politics, and women in life in general, and, you know, help achieve equality for women and, and other marginalized populations. That's, that's the core mission. But I will say 
I'm still learning and figuring it out because I sold my half of the company last year and I'm, I'm doing a lot of different things figuring it out. So, um, you know, very involved with, with Stern. I love, I've loved over the years coming back and speaking to classes at Stern. I, I've actually spoken to undergrads, to MBAs, to alum, to mm-hmm. incoming students. Um, so I love that. Also, I do similar work with Trinity College where I went undergrad and, and encouraging women there. Um, I also am speaking to groups of women, women entrepreneurs, uh, in other places like that I that I could tell you, but organizations and, and giving advice on mm-hmm. starting and building companies. So I do that um, with the foundation. I also, aside from the women focus, I'm quite involved in American Heart Association, which I'm I've been co-chair for the last two years of Go Red for Women, which is Um, focusing on heart disease and women because it is the number one killer of women. And the symptoms are different for women than men. But then I am on the board of American Heart Association New York, and that's for women and men in general. So focused on heart disease because, as I mentioned, it's the number one killer of women and men. And then I also am involved in something called IWMF, which is the International Waldenstrom Foundation. Um, my dad has Waldenstrom. It's a kind of cancer, a rare kind of lymphoma. And what's very exciting about it is, well, this foundation focuses on Waldenstrom, mm-hmm. but the work it's doing helps with other forms of lymphoma and other forms of leukemia, so blood cancer in general. And my dad got diagnosed eight years ago, and they said to him, you have up to five years to live. And, you know, he's still um, doing great, He's yeah, thank you. And now the prognosis for him or anyone gets who gets diagnosed with it, um, or the average person who gets diagnosed with it, is about eighteen years. So they are they're making so much progress with the research they're doing, and as I said, it helps with other forms of lymphoma and leukemia. So involved in that, and then I'm also getting involved in every town which I don't know if you're familiar with that, I've but that's yeah. Mayor Bloomberg. I mean, he started it. That's right. He's the biggest funder, a, a supporter of it. It's basically the biggest gun safety, gun control organization in the country. And I just, I feel passionate about it. And it relates to the woman's cause, causes in the sense that violence against women mm-hmm. um, organization, violence against women, that's all related to it. But um, it. Basically, I mean, I could go on about it, but I'm very excited to be involved in that, too, because that's a very important cause to me as well. Wow. So just just a few things, you know, right? <laughs> just casual, just a couple. Yeah. Oh, and, and I'm figuring oh it gosh. out, you know, it's, it's amazing. Oh, thank you. I yeah. mean, there's so many wonderful causes to be involved in. And it, it's just nice to be able to see what's out there and, and see what yeah. kind of impact I can make now that I'm not involved in in the company full-time what have you or, been able or at to, all <laughs> yeah what have you been able to draw on moving into the nonprofit world from now you know leading a business very sure. for-profit to now having you know having your arms in, in in all the nonprofit world what's what's worked in that sort of transition for you yeah I mean it's certainly it's different but I mean what's a nice change for me as far as how I'm spending my time is I I was very much involved 24 7 and building the company, running the company. And, you know, it was all about time and FaceTime and, and travel and whatever needed to be done. 
now I'm focusing my my efforts on which things I want to do that are going to make the most impact, mm. not mm. because I'm already in the situation. I mean, it was very much in it. You know, it, even though as companies grow, often you can work on them rather than in them. There was a lot of in them still in it, whereas now I can step back and figure out, okay, what, where can I make the biggest impact to help make the world a better place? Because I, I loved what I was doing, but I'm excited for the change and finding other ways to make an impact on the world. So it, it's a nice change. Wow. Yeah. And that's so cool to hear that you, you're still figuring it out because I know yeah. I'm always figuring things out and keep expecting to be figured out any day now. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, and I think that's so important for students who now, I mean, I see these students who start undergrad, they're freshmen or sophomores, and they're expected to know what they want to do after college. I didn't know. I, I really didn't know. I mean, I didn't know what I wanted to major in until I had to make that final decision right, sophomore yeah. year. And then, I, as you could, as I mentioned, I mean, I knew I loved languages, but I, it, it, I just happened to get lucky and find the opportunities. But I didn't know, even when I got my MBA at age 26, whether I was going to go in the direction of finance mm-hmm. or maybe it would have been marketing with a you know consumer products company but i had the other thing so i didn't really have that figured out until i started transperfect and it was it was going well so i i think and then now i i'm trying to figure out okay for the next 25 years exactly where do i want to put my time and my resources so yes i think we're all constantly evolving and figuring yeah. it out i mean it's refreshing to think about the fact that it's never too early or too late to to start something new and to like try a new de- direction for yourself to a large extent. That's what Absolutely. a lot of us have done when by coming to school. So yes. I, your experience is a testament to that. And I think that's really inspiring. Oh, right. thank you. Yeah. Thank that's you. Awesome. Um, I wonder, uh, you know, um, this is a podcast for mostly, you know, start students and a lot of people listen um, all as well. What, what advice would you have for students now, whether in the MBA program or just, you know, across, um, you know, you interact with students a lot. So what, what typically do you, advice do you give them, especially those thinking about entrepreneurship? Well, as far as entrepreneurship, as I mentioned for me, I was very fortunate with the timing. Mm-hmm. And not that when you're immediately post-MBA is the only time to do it. And I, and I know there are a lot of other people doing it when they're in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, their 60s, and that's wonderful too. But I think it's nice if you can do it when you don't have too many other commitments, be it a spouse and kids and or elderly parents. I mean, if you can, if you're fortunate enough to be in that situation, because for me, it was very important to put in many, many hours. And for us, for our company, we, we, we did it without outside funding. And I think that's a great way to do it, by the way. But um, I guess what I'd say on that is if you can do it when you can dedicate 100 hours, 110 hours, 120 hours a week, if you need to, to get it off the ground and to do it with no funding. And the time to do that is when you're young and when you're used to living and acting like a student where you're not giving up lifestyle and you're not throwing away money that you've worked hard to earn. So I think doing it early is important if or or later in life when you don't have a family at home. I think and putting in the hours is very important. I think, you know, that's critical. I think also um, 
you know, having a good idea is obviously important, but often the idea is the hard part. And so if you can think of something that's already being done, but do it better, mm. which is what our thought was, you know, it, we were, it was an industry that clearly was it was already out there, but it wasn't being done as well as it could be. Um, so finding something good to do, and if you can't think of a new novel idea, something that's being done and doing it better, I think um, spoiling the client, that oh. was critical. That was <laughs> one of, that was really the impetus, yeah. nice. spoiling the client. Okay. I think trying to create a uh, an amazing culture I always wanted to be an employer of choice in our industry and ideally any industry. And I think we we did that. I mean, we had an amazing team who worked hard and played hard and were extremely motivated to build the company. I think also it's be, uh, aligning incentives. So when the company does well, the employees do well, you know, financially. Um, the way we compensated people was very much that okay. way. Uh, very much a meritocracy. I think having a lot of salespeople is very important. And I, I find that as I talk to entrepreneurs now, they have a great idea. They may have already, they may have a company that's been in business one, two, three years, and they have a back end. They have the production part and they have the infrastructure, but the CEO or the founder, the entrepreneur is the salesperson and they don't spend enough time or money growing that sales team. And mm. if they do, that's the key to scaling it. And that's where the profits should go, sales and marketing. So I think that's very important because I, I see that as an issue constantly. Um, let's see, what else? I mean, there are a lot of other things I... I I was going to yeah. ask, uh, you were saying that you see a lot of entrepreneurs taking the role of salespeople. What yeah. would you say the role of a good CEO actually oh, is? Oh, and um, I think the CEO should always be selling. I don't mm -hmm. mean they shouldn't, but I don't think they should be the salesperson. You know, I think That's they should. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I mean, 100% that, I mean, I think their most important role is to bring in clients. I do. And to uh, grow those clients. You know, uh, one of one of the things that often happens is you may get some big client names, which is amazing because that helps you get more big client names. But that often you might be just doing, or what we were sometimes doing is a small amount of work for a big client. And then it's about growing the client within their own company, you know, within a, a big company. But, but I think the idea is to hire salespeople as quickly as you can and then pay them in such a way that they make more money than they would in any other sales position, both in your industry and outside your industry, such that they never want to leave. Oh. And that, that I think, is critical in any business. I, the, the salespeople are, are very important. I think um, marketing is also very important. And with social media, it's a lot easier and more cost-effective than it ever was. Sure, so that's yeah. a great way to get the word out. So I think the time and money should be put into sales and marketing. And I, I think the CEO should also be working on the culture, making sure the right people are, oh, I mean, or, and the people in general, but the right people are hired and that they're they're happy and they're motivated to to make the company succeed and to, to wow the clients. I'm really glad that your advice includes not only uh, characteristics, but thinking of the people who are working for you as far as their culture, happiness, and fair pay. That's oh, really great to hear. Absolutely. I think that's critical. I mean, obviously, people want their company to be as successful as possible. 
and, and uh, the revenue to grow as quickly as possible and the profit to grow as quickly as possible. And that was always our goal. But I think the way you do it is by motivating the people who are helping you get there. I mean, sure, in the first year or two, it might be just you and your partner. But quickly, once you've got those people and it's all about them and keeping them happy and motivated and incentivized, and if they're happy and motivated and incentivized, then, then the clients will be. And obviously, in the end, if, if you have the business, then the company is successful. And you need those people. You don't want to lose the people who are bringing in that business and making the clients happy. Yeah, and you know, there's so many studies now showing how important culture is to, uh, especially younger people who are getting into the workforce now yes. for the very first time. It's almost, it's almost one of the very first things they look at outside of even compensation or location or anything like that. So no, it's, you're it's, right. Yeah, it's, with millennials, um, they want they want a a good place to work where they're treated well, where they have a work life balance, where they're learning, where they have a purpose. Mm -hmm. And we talked about all of those things. We emphasized all of those things. You know, we did a lot of things to keep them motivated. Um, you know, whether some of them were in small offices, in, you know, another continent, and we brought them together uh, a couple times a year. I mean, depending upon what we had. I mean, we had a an annual conference, I and mean, we had a number of different things, sure. but whether it was platinum. Engaging them, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, engaging them where they were networking with one another, where they were learning from one another, and then platinum club, rewarding the top performers. I mean, all of these things come later after initially launching it, but um, it's nice. I mean, I know funding is very important. If you can do it without funding, that works well too, but that's that's another Thing altogether. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I mean, we're so lucky to have you here with us, Liz. Um, I learned a ton from this conversation. We're lucky to have you as an alum and for you to be back and have this conversation with us. Thanks so much for your time and sharing your experience with us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thanks yes. so much to both of you. Oh, thank was, you. Oh, thanks. It was wonderful being here.